0: Luke chapter 15, we're actually going to close the chapter out today, 11 through 32. Believe it or not, we will be here for a while. Well, we hope not, right? So, here, seriously, Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32, I'd encourage you to go ahead and get your Bible. We're not going to read it all in one one shot, uh, we're going to kind of take it in chunks. As you're turning there, let me just kind of set the passage up and what's happening. So Jesus' teaching had been drawing his teaching of truth. He's not watering things down. He's not, he's not just messing around. He's teaching serious, confrontational, grace-filled truth, right? It's, it's showing people their sin and it's calling them, uh, showing them how they can come to him. So he's doing that and it's drawing the tax collectors and sinners to himself. It's bringing them to him. And the Pharisees are upset. They are angry about this. They are grumbling about it, David even says. But, but more than just t- drawing them to him, he's upset because it is... He's actually sitting down and having dinner with them. He's having a meal with them and they're having religious conversation. So these people that the Pharisees assumed or determined, they didn't assume, they, they determined that they weren't worthy of religious conversation. They weren't worthy of the attention of a religious leader, not even a religious leader like Jesus they were frustrated and upset that Jesus would sit down and eat with the likes of tax collectors and sinners. The sinners would be like prostitutes and, and just the, those vile people that we can all point to and say, that person's a sinner, right? That's, that's the people that they were referring to. But Jesus sat with them, he ate with them, and, and they did what the, the Pharisees did what came natural as a result. They grumbled, they complained, they were, they were bothered by it. They, They spoke about it, and it wasn't in nice terms. And so in response to that, Jesus tells them a parable. The parable he tells them is in three parts. It's a trilogy, if you will. It's one parable with three pieces. And we've studied that parable over the last two weeks. Today we're studying the third piece. The first part of the story is the lost sheep. The shepherd owner goes out, seeks the sheep, And finds it, when he finds it, he picks it up rejoicing, carries it on his shoulders back to his home and rejoices in bringing the lost sheep home. This is indicative, representative of Jesus our Savior who took our burdens on himself on the cross. He carries us home by his cross. The second part of the story is the, in this Trinitarian trilogy, if you will, is a picture of, it's a different aspect, a different perspective of God's work in salvation. It's the picture of the Holy Spirit's work through God's people. He'd always been making himself known through his people, by his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But through his people in, in interacting with the Jews, he had done that. And even in the church, we see that that's what he has intended to do. We are to be the light in the world. That light comes from God dwelling within us. And so we see the woman who's lost her coin and one out of 10 and she goes seeking. She will not give up until she find it finds it, and when she does, she celebrates. Just like God's people would celebrate, God's people celebrating by God's Spirit the finding of those who have been lost and reunited to them. And while these, these two pictures, or these two parables, parts of the parable I guess I should say, give us a distinct perspective of God's work in salvation, there is one theme. There's one thing that unites them. God seeks out his people to save them from their sin because it is his joy to do so. That's been the main point two weeks in a row. The truth is, is that this gospel theme is expressed all over the scripture. It's everywhere. But it's probably no clearer than it is right here in Luke chapter 15. And, in, and as we see that happening, as we study now this third installment of the trilogy, there will be no shortage of rejoicing. There will be no shortage of celebration. This gospel theme saturates this whole chapter. It's filled full to overflowing with this gospel goodness that God rejoices in saving sinners. That's what he does. That's the work. That's his heart. That's the work that he set out to do. Today in the passage, we get to see something happen. You see, Jesus has been saying, he said it in uh, two, two different points, he said that God rejoices over the repentance of one sinner over the oh, he doesn 't rejoice over the 99 sheep that are still in the flock. He rejoices over the one sinner who was found, the one sheep who was found, he rejoices. The one coin that the woman found is, is representative. it represented finding, finding god 's lost people. It says that there was rejoicing in heaven in front of the angels. We're going to get to see that rejoicing. We're going to get to see the picture of that rejoicing. But we're not just going to get to see the party take place. We're going to get to see the other side of things. You see, we've been looking at the salvation from the work that God has done. And Today, we're going to get to see the response of a sinful man. Repenting. Being that repentant sinner God rejoices over. So we're going to change up the wording just a little bit, the wording of our main point. Still same idea, still same perspective, but just slightly different. God receives repentant sinners as his children, not his servants, and joyously celebrates in doing so. In the previous two stories, it was God's work we focused on. Jesus represented the seeking shepherd, He picked up the sheep. He carried it home. Repentance is pictured simply. The sheep didn't run away. (laughs) He he lost lost himself. He could do nothing to save himself. And when the shepherd came, he didn't run away. The Holy Spirit, empowering and leading his people, did all the work in the parable of the lost coin. The coin has no ability to, to find itself. All it can do is lay there until the light shines on it and it reflects that light so that the woman could find it. But as you'll see in this text, as you're going to see in this text, the repentance portion, the the action out of that repentance comes even clearer. It comes even brighter. Now make no mistake, we're not challenging God's sovereign work in salvation. It's not what my intention is to do. But, but, but having seen it, having seen it clearly laid out, there's no sense in, in always having to relay that foundation, right? So, so now we can take a, a look at a different part of this perspective. There, There, there is a reality that, that real action comes out of the heart that has been found, right? There's real action that, that results, that's a response of a heart that has been Found, I think it was Pas- uh, Blaise Pascal that as he came into salvation and he understood that he had been begun to seek God, he was convicted by the Spirit with the, with the reality that you only seek me because I found you. Like he only was seeking after God because he had been found. This action is always going to be secondary. It's always going to be a response to the seeking and, and, and finding of God. When someone's heart is taken over by faith and repentance, they're then going to be led to begin seeking. They're going to seek the one who actually sought them. That's what's happening. And all of these parables have to be taken together to really see that aspect. Well, we can't isolate this one parable today because if we do, then that's, 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 well, that's not doing justice to the text. That's not interpreting the Bible for all it's worth, simply trying to prove a point of our own. Well, what doesn't change in this? There's one thing that doesn't change through all three parts of this trilogy. Our Father in heaven rejoices. Our, our God rejoices. Heaven celebrates when repentant sinners return. I love the way this ends. You'll see the passage in a second. At the very last verse of this chapter where the the story ends, it was fitting to celebrate. It's like we had to. It was the right thing to do. Whether God is seeking, whether God is receiving repentance sinners, whatever he's doing, he rejoices and heaven celebrates. So if you go home with nothing else today, well, while we work through this passage, I hope you'll go home with this. God receives repentant sinners as his children, not his servants, and joyously celebrates in doing so. He rejoices in this. Well, let's see this play out. I don't want you to just take my word for it, I want you to see it play out. We'll begin reading in verse 11. We'll read a chunk of it, we'll stop, we'll kind of look at it, deal with the nuances of it. And then we'll move forward. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not Many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So in this, in this first little block, this part of the outline, I would call the younger brother rebels, right? So we see this rebellion. We see it take place. The, the younger brother, the first of three characters that we get to meet, represents the tax collectors and sinners. You've got to remember, this is not an isolated event. This is not an isolated story. Jesus is telling this story because... He was being confronted. He was being criticized for sitting down with tax collectors and sinners. This rebellious son represents those sinners. You'll see it play out in all the characters exemplified as we go through it. But just take my word for it at this point. That's who they are. this, This son is those people. And this younger brother flat out rebels. They would have all recognized it. They would have all instantly heard it. Let me just break it down. There's some of the ways he rebels. He requested his inheritance before his father was dead. Now, there is a provision in the law, in the Mosaic law, in the, in the law that the Jews would have followed, there was a provision where he could, he could receive his inheritance early, where the father could assign the inheritance early. Maybe someone in your family has done this for you, like put the little Post-it note up under the coffee table. This is yours when I'm gone, right? But none of us go and take it and bring it to our house. And I think it's. I think even we recognize that it's rude, it's improper for someone to go up. Hey, you know, I know I'm going to get that when I when you die. Although I guess I've I've heard my wife and her brother argue over the baskets and the the baskets and the cars that their parents collect. It's really kind of funny, but but they're doing it jokingly. Nobody's trying to take them and sell them right now. They just let you know that's mine when you're gone. That's what, this, that's what this son did. He's like, hey, I, I don't want to wait for you to die. In fact, really what he's saying is, when you stop and think about it is, I just wish you were dead because I want your stuff. Why don't you, I, I, and, I, and I'm not patient enough for you to die. So I'm not going to wait for you to, to assign it to me. I, I need you to give it to me now. And the father does something that would have been unthinkable to these Pharisees. He divides the property. And he gives his youngest son his portion. And the actual meaning, the actual translation, or literal translation, is give me what would fall to me. Like, give me what isn't mine, and I don't really deserve yet, but I believe belongs to me on the day of your death. Give it to me today. So I wish you were dead so I could get it. So he requests his inheritance before his father's dead. In fact, wishing his father was dead, longing for his father's stuff. And then what happens next? He liquidates it. It's like he puts up every, just a few days later, it says. like he, He's just now kind of understanding what he has. He probably just finished his inventory. And here he goes. He sets everything out on the front yard and has a yard sale. He's like, oh, man, i got to get rid of all this stuff because I need the cash. Because his heart is to leave. His heart is to be gone. He, he has a place to go. He has a, something to do. He liquidates everything. So here's what would have happened. In the law, the, the older brother would have gotten two-thirds of the, of the possessions. The older brother would have got the largest portion of them. The father gave him a third of all of his possessions. He sets them out on the front yard, has this yard sale, liquidates everything, takes the cash, and goes. He left. He left. This is going to be a theme all the way through. Sin is always dividing; it always divides. You cannot think that you can sin and in some way result in reconciliation or bringing things together. It's always destructive. It's always divisive. It's always hurtful, regardless of who is doing it. And that sin divides. So, it's not only has he wished his father dead. Not only has he valued his father's possession more than he's valued his father, there's another nuance to be seen. He's actually seeking an identity other than the son of his father. Sin breaks relationships. He doesn't want to be his father's son anymore. He wants independence. He wants his own identity. He wants to rule himself. He wants wants to be his own authority. So he liquidates everything, cuts all ties. And, ghosts. and he spent everything on nothing and was left penniless. He didn't have any regard for his father at all. So much so that he didn't put anything in reserve. He didn't set anything aside. He didn't think, oh man, I don't want to be rid of this one thing Because it reminds me of home. He spent everything he had on nothing. It says that he he spent it recklessly. He was out partying every night, in in the clubs, dancing, buying prostitutes. Until he's penniless. Flat out rebellion. This is what he had done. And and here's here's the thing, when this famine hits, he notices the need more than ever. He notices now, suddenly, now, I've got a problem. He was faced with this, this one economic truth, I guess you will, if you will. If you spend more than you make, at some point you run out, and you have nothing left but debt. You have nothing left but need. And that's exactly what had happened with him. The irony here in all of this, I think, is the famine hits and he finds out how desperately needy he is. He's confronted with the reality of how desperately needy he is. The irony of it all is is that he goes to this man to be hired out as his servant to to feed pigs. Again, I don't think our our English text is, is giving us the clearest definition or the clearest translation. It could. It says that he hired him out, but that word hired... It's the same word in the Greek that he glued himself to him. So here's this kid who's running from his father, who's seeking his own independence, who's seeking to run away, be his own authority, who doesn't want any connections to anything of his past, and suddenly he's faced with this fact that I am in need and I can't help but glue myself or bind myself to this Gentile man and his pigs. Irony of ironies. But before we move on, I just want us to see how far-reaching this is in our own lives. I think it's easy for us to see how this plays out in the life of tax collectors and sinners, people who it's easy to deem are sinful. It's a little more difficult to get personal about it. The truth is is every sinner is guilty of these things. The heart ruled by sin seeks to establish its own identity. And just like the younger brother was dissatisfied with, his, with, with being his father's son, we aren't satisfied with being creations of our creator, our children of our God. If we were satisfied with this identity, we wouldn't be pursuing so many others. It's all through the text of Scripture. You see it happen over and over and over in the Old Testament. But even today, even today, we're more willing to say, I am so-and-so's husband. I am such-and-such father. I am this or that's brother. This is what I do for a living, so this is who I am. And I know it's not culturally normal. and doesn't feel right to even think about it out loud. But how often do we introduce ourselves as children of the king? How many of us, that's the first thing people learn about us? Because a sinful heart is never going to be satisfied with the identity assigned to it. We're always going to be seeking to identify ourselves by something we have deemed worthy of us. The heart ruled by sin seeks to live under its own authority. See, just like the younger brother, we all desire our independence. Again, over and over examples are given in Scripture. The Israelites were a stiff-necked people. In the book of Judges, they, everybody kind of did what was right in their own eyes, it says. Adam and Eve, one command, one thing withheld. Nah, it's not good enough. Look at that fruit. It's good to eat. It's going to make me wise. God can't possibly know what he's talking about in withholding it from us. I'll reject his authority and live by my own. Give me the fruit. See, here's the reality. This is a hard lesson to learn. There's always going to be an authority over us. Always, always, always. We, 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 we. Prize independence in our culture. We 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 elevate it to some nth degree as if it's one some trait that we're supposed to be looking for in people and supposed to be uh, 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 complimenting in people. We were created to be dependent. There's none of us that have the strength or power within ourselves to be fully independent. We will always be glued to something. In the words of Paul in in Romans chapter 6, we will either be slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. We will either be glued to sin and ruled by it, or we will be glued to God and his righteousness and ruled by him. There is no choice. There is no other third option. But the heart ruled by sin will always seek to to own itself, to be its own authority, to, to lie to itself and in some way think that it can be. But it will never work. The heart ruled by sin values what God has more than having God. You see, what this son did when he went to his father and said, give me your stuff. was reject his father. I want your things. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1 when it says they exchanged the creator for the creation. They displaced the truth with a lie. They worshiped created things rather than the creator. The heart ruled by sin wants what God offers Without, without having to deal with the God who owns it. Like we want the good, right? We want the blessings. We want what's, what we think we deserve, what we think is ours. But we have displaced God, Creator God, Heavenly Father. We have displaced Him with a bunch of little G gods that were created by Him. Because we want what he made more than we want him. The heart ruled by sin will never find satisfaction. See, just like this younger brother didn't get what he wanted by going out on his own, no one will. We will only ever pursue that next thing. We'll always be empty, seeking constantly to try and fill that desire in our heart. The truth is, whether we like to admit it or not, and I speak of myself first, we are not better than the younger brother. The Pharisees listening to the story were blind to this. And they would have heard this and they would have been at this point, at this moment, they would have been thinking something like that's exactly what he deserves. He's getting what he deserves. He rebelled. It's his consequences. Let him, he made the bed. Let him sleep in it. Stupid sinner. Leave him there to rot. But Jesus is about to change it up. You know the story goes a little different than this, right? So we pick it up in verse 17. But, there's a contrast word for you, but things are about to change. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You see, the testimony of his father's generosity, the testimony of his father's heart, the testimony of, of the, the, the hired servants. The testimony of what his father had done for other people rang in his heart and rang in his mind how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. They don't just have enough. They have more than enough. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. The younger brother repents. So the younger brother rebels. Now the younger brother repents. He comes to himself. He, he realizes, wait a minute, what a fool I am. What have I done? What was I thinking? So he gets up and he goes to his father. What's happening here is he has a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that goes to, to, to a new change of, or, or to a change of action. Does that sound familiar for those of you that have been here with us through this study of Luke? How have we been defining repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that redirects the affections of the heart and results in a change of actions. That's what we've learned. As as Luke has shown us over and over and over the importance of repentance, as Jesus has taught and preached repentance, that's what we've learned. Let's just see how that breaks down. The, The younger brother's mind is changed. He recognizes how foolish he's been. He re- realizes, wait a minute, what was I thinking leaving? What am I thinking spending everything? What am I, I'm, I'm in need. Who in the world ever thought they could be their own authority? Who ever thought they could ultimately and truly be independent? What was I thinking? He has this change of mind. That leads to a new affection in his heart. Before, he wanted to be rid of his place in his father's house. Now any place will do. He begins to desire a place in his father's house. But he recognizes, now he recognizes, I don't deserve the place of a son. I'm not so arrogant today to to ask to be a son. A gutter in heaven will do, right? So he he devises his plan. This new affection leads to action. He doesn't stay in that distant country. He gets up and goes home. He devises a plan, prepares a speech, gets up out of the pigsty, pig slop, and begins walking home. He quits rebelling against his father and begins returning to him. In repentance, rebellion will stop that we can begin to return. A couple things I want to point out just before we go any further. We're talking about this from the side of repentance, like that negative idea. And remember when we talked about it, repentance is one side of the coin. You repent of what's wrong and believe in what's right. You can't, you can't believe in what's right without quitting believing or stopping believing or repenting of what's wrong. You can't repent of wrong things you've done without beginning to do what's right. And on one side you have repentance, but on the other side you have faith. You begin believing the truth. He began believing that his father was generous, that his father was a good man, that his father was someone worthy of living in his household. He began believing things differently and and, and, and woven in that, intricately woven together is the repentance. We have this dual perspective going on here. He believed and repented. Well, look, he's still being selfish. Even in his believing and even in his repenting, why is he going back? Because he's hungry. He's in need. He still wants what the Father has, but not willing to understand his broken relationship or even own his own identity. And you could say, well, that's Humility. Or you could say that's not knowing just how generous his father is. It's really a false humility. Still a lot of arrogance. But before we get too hard on him, let me just ask. Who of you approached the Father in heaven? Your initial approach. Your initial repentance. And it wasn't all about what he had to offer. Salvation. Salvation. From hell. Eternal life. This is a good things, They're great things. It's things we promote. Things we long for. But we will not have them without having the Father. And they would be meaningless without him. So let me just this isn't the point of the sermon necessarily, but, but, but a point of application maybe is don't be, don't be shied along for the things he offers. Just don't think you're ever going to have them if he's not intricately, completely center, front, front and center. See, to be fair, the same way that, that our sin is characterized by this younger brother, our repentance is as well. Ill motives, selfish, arrogant. But there's this beautiful moment that has been coming. And really, the heart of this parable, the reason Jesus talked about this younger son, was not just so that he could compare him to these tax collectors and sinners, but so that he could show the beauty of the love of this glorious father. See, the father is going to restore this boy. The father is going to make him a son again. We see it happen. We pick it back up in verse 20. It says, and he arose and came to his father. That's the first part. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son but you notice the speech didn't go so long in this one there's a whole phrase missing but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it let us eat and celebrate see this is where things go absolutely crazy Like the the, the Pharisees, they would have been all right with the idea of this son languishing and and rotting in some pigsty because that's what he deserved. They would have been okay with the idea of him coming to his senses and coming back and thinking, okay, I've got to just be a servant. I've got to pay back what I've done. But here the Pharisees would have been blown away. Their eyes would have just popped out of their head. This son begins his journey home, but while he's a long way off, He's in a distant country, and now he's still a long way off. It's not like he got to the front gate. He's a long way off. It demonstrates that the Father was looking for him. He'd been watching the horizon for him. When he sees him, he runs to him. He kisses him, and and he begins giving commands to his servants to demonstrate to them and everyone else, he isn't going to think of this man anything other than his son. Listen, this is so, this fills my soul. Our Father in heaven isn't looking for servants. He doesn't need you to serve him. He's looking for his children, he's seeking for the return of his children. You, in believing and repenting, do not come back into service, you come back into childhood. You are children of the king. And yes, we serve him, but not because that's our assigned duty, but because it's our pleasure in serving the one who sought us and found us and loves us. He doesn't need you to be a servant. He longs for you to be his son. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this father who ran to his son. He took the shame upon himself. This is not dignified. It's a man of position and piety. He had servants and he had wealth. He would have been looked up to in his society and into his, into his city. He would, have been, he would have been revered. And here he is. He's wrapping his robes up and he's running. Who's, what's he running for? That no name? That kid who should be in his slop? What's he doing running to him? And he's kissing him. He touches him. He, what, what, what's going on? The father ran to the son, and the father bestowed sonship, not shame. Immediately, he's kissing him, he's hugging him, holding, him. and he turns to his servants. And hearing that repentant confession, that's all he needed. And re- he turns to his servants and he says, "Hey, go, go and get the best robe. That's likely his own robe." You know who owns the best robe in the house? The one who owns the house. Ask my sons. I got the best robe. <laughs> That's true. Go get the best robe and put it on him. Go get a ring. You see, in, in that culture, that, that ring would have signified the relationship and authority. Like when they sealed things, they would have pressed it into the, to the wax. Like he's not just saying he's my son. He's saying he has authority in my house and over what's left. You know, the two-thirds that this arrogant, selfish, sinful, rebelling son took, that one-third that he took and left two-thirds over, that two-thirds the father is saying he has authority no shame when there is repentance in the heart when there is faith in the one there is no shame the father bestowed sonship not shame he says put shoes on his feet see in that day servants they they didn't get to wear shoes but the masters in the house did the father took the hit, the cost, if you will, was he bestowed sonship. He, he, he gave the son back what he had reject, or what he had rebelled against. But it isn't done. The father rejoices. Kills a fattened calf. If, you, if you're familiar with it, it's like Kobe steaks tonight, right? Like wagyu beef all around. We are going to have the best. Dinner ever. This, this, this cow would have been saved. It would have been, would have been held for some special occasion. And this is the beautiful picture again of the gospel. <laughs> the God who is our Father rejoices when sinners repent. What the Father in this story has done for his rebelling and repenting Son, our Heavenly Father God, does for every rebel who repents. Man, it's been my prayer all week. Actually, it started, it's every week, but these last three weeks, I've been intentionally praying, purposefully praying, that the rebels that sit in this room every Sunday hearing these words would repent. And that they wouldn't find shame. Would find a father who rejoices in giving them their sonship. And restoring them to a relationship to himself. God receives repentant sinners as his children, not his servants. And joyously celebrates in doing so. This is his heart. This is what he has been about doing since Adam and Eve first rebelled and sin against him. What the Pharisees were grumbling about is the very heartbeat of God. What it demonstrated is that they were much farther than they realized from him.